0: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money.
1: The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the and
2: you. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley
1: Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analysts Charlie Travers, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, good to see you. Good to, good see, to see you, Chris. Chris. We've got the latest from GM, HP, and other companies that have more than two initials. We'll talk about the future of the tobacco industry with CNBC correspondent Brian Shackman. But once again, we begin overseas with the ongoing situation in the Middle East. Uh, James, the business story at the core of what's happening is about oil. Uh, oil prices hit a two-year high this week. What does all this mean for stocks that are connected to the oil industry?
3: Well, Chris, in general, they're up. That's a pretty simple thesis right there. I like Chevron as an example in particular. Like, like all the oil majors, it, it's up. But it got out of Libya in November of last year, which was pretty good timing. And it has a lot less exposure to refining than most of the oil majors. And refining, Chris, has been a lot less profitable, more of a commodity business. But within that story, there's sort of another story. The big refiners like Valero are really suffering because – The prices they buy oil at are pegged to the European price index, the Brent index. But meanwhile, the U.S. oil price index, which usually trades at the same level as the Brent, is about $18 cheaper, West Texas Intermediate. So the small U.S. refiners, not like Valero, but like Alon Energy, Holly Oil, these guys buy most of their oil at, because refiners are buyers of oil. So so they buy it at the lower Brent price, but but they're selling it at the refined product at prices that are influenced by the higher price. So a lot of these companies are going to do a lot better if this unrest uh, drags on.
1: So not all oil refiners are created equal in terms of the the impact. That's of
3: correct. It's a lot more nuanced situation than you might think. Ron Gross,
1: uh, what are some of the other winners and losers that you see that, that if they're not directly in the oil industry, maybe they're impacted by it?
0: Uh, w- one which I think maybe is a little counterintuitive. I think Costco could be an interesting play here. Um, a, they, they sell gasoline mm-hmm. uh, and they sell it at very competitive prices, which Um, As gasoline prices rise, um, theoretically I could see um, people going to Costco more and more for gas. Plus once they're there, um, consumers that are hurting because of higher gas prices um, will hopefully shop at Costco for for their staples and their um, 144 rolls of toilet paper. (laughs) And uh, The the, the proposition... The value proposition that Costco offers will will really benefit these folks. So you'll have them driving in for gas and staying for, for all the other merchandise.
2: Charlie Travers, what about you? Outside of the actual oil majors that James mentioned, which are in the refiners, you know, the companies involved in pulling the fossil fuels out of the ground and processing it into a usable form, uh, I think investors can look towards the companies that provide either services or equipment to the oil majors. Uh, this would be companies like National Oil well Varco or Schlumberger. And, you know, the reason these companies will kind of benefit in a tertiary sense is that as the uh, drilling activity goes up, you know, equipment needs to be replaced, more services need to be provided. Now, unfortunately, these stocks are at 52-weeks highs, uh, just like the oil company's stocks are doing well. Uh, so, the market is forward-looking. Um, you got to pick your spots. But those are two very good companies.
1: General Motors posted a profit for 2010, ending a seven-year string of annual losses but GM's fourth quarter profits were lower than analysts were expecting, and shares were down on the news. Uh, James, you're our resident gearhead. What's your take on well, GM?
3: First, Chris, for perspective, even Chrysler had a decent year, so that says something <laughs> right there. You know I don't like to mince words on GM. GM is the morbidly obese marathon runner who was on the ground with a heart attack, <laughs> got picked up by an ambulance, resuscitated, and then got dropped off a block from the finish line. And now he's finished the race, and now he's celebrated. How do, you, how do you really feel about yeah. it? There's yeah, an image. Exactly. You know, the, the one thing that... Uh, that is not, not fair on it, is, is during the ride, GM did get a lot of liposuction. So it is a <laughs> leaner, meaner company. And that's a, that is a positive. I mean that. Um, international sales, especially in China, are much higher. They're actually catching up with North American sales a little bit. And that's, that's very, very significant. But the key point, Chris, is this. GM is used to getting by by just being GM. The problem is, there's not a lot of good stuff about being GM. And so, GM is <laughs> going to have to think like a scrappy, struggling, new automaker to succeed. And right, they, may, they announced that they're giving each auto worker like a $4,200 check, which, yes, is part of their contract, but that's not very scrappy.
1: Well, you mentioned China, and, and they are doing well in China. Uh, GM often gets compared to Ford. Certainly on this show, we do that. But in China, GM sales are five times what Ford is doing. Uh, Ron, what do you make of, of GM?
0: Uh, certainly they're on the uptrend. Things are looking better than they have in quite some time. But I see really four main negatives, at least in the Just near four. <laughs> term. Four, four main negatives. We'll get to the ancillary ones in a later show. Um, one, they're offering incentives to drive people to purchase cars. That, that can hurt them, um, certainly from a margin perspective. Two, higher steel prices can also hurt them from a margin perspective. As we just discussed, we could be dealing with higher gas prices, typically not good for a company like GM. And then we have the government's desire to exit their ownership, exit their position, which will create an overhang on the stock until they finally get out. So some headwinds for GM going forward.
1: All right. Shares of Walmart were down this week after the company posted its latest earnings. Same store sales fell for the seventh consecutive quarter. Ron Gross, this is the world's biggest retailer. What's going on?
0: Well, let's differentiate. The seventh uh, consecutive qu- uh, quarter of declining same-store sales was U.S. based. So, the U.S. stores continue to suffer. Okay. Uh, and they're stumbling, as um, result of the U.S. consumer uh, being relatively weak, and as a result of some missteps that Walmart has made. Are you calling U.S. consumers weak? <laughs> <laughs> Their pocketbooks and oh, wallets okay. are hurting okay. at the moment, Chris. I don't know if you've heard, but we have 9% unemployment yeah. in this country. I heard a little something about that. Um, so... Uh, Walmart has some mis- missteps. They tried to pare back on, on their inventory, offer less items. That turns out to have been a mistake. They're now scrambling to to offer more items, go back to the old Walmart model. They've taken a hit as a result of that. Uh, interestingly, um, this is actually a stock we own in the, in the service I work with uh, here, the Million Dollar Portfolio. Uh, we own this for its international exposure, specifically its emerging market exposure, which is, is doing well. So, we have struggling U.S., international is doing well. Hopefully, if they get to act
1: together domestically here, the stock um, will be a good purchase. Well, and Charlie, we were talking about this before the show. When you look at the stock, I mean, yes, it's the world's biggest retailer, but the stock really hasn't done much for a long time.
2: Yeah, it's a case of great company, bad stock. The stock is trading basically where it was a decade ago, which is pretty shocking. Um, so, I, you know, maybe investors were paying too high a price a decade ago. And, you know, actually, I, I think the price looks good now. Just, you know, I think they'll solve their problems.
3: James? I agree with Charlie. You know, this is a company that, like, I recommended in a, in a Motley Fool special report. I agree with Ron. Walmart with fewer items is basically a target, and between the two of them, you know, people are going to go to Target. But this is something they've known now for a while. For the past, you know, six months or so, they've been trying to add back. So uh, there is probably a lag, and I think we're going to see uh, see those items return. We're going to see more money. It's just going to take time. I think I think it's right. It could be a good time to buy now.
1: But people are going to Walmart. I mean, it, they didn't get to be the world's biggest retailer for nothing.
3: Yeah, but when you're this big incremental stuff matters in terms of the stock price
0: run right but to your point 10 billion dollars in free cash flow for the last year the uh, the company is still quite profitable and doing well I'll push back on what Charlie said just a tiny bit um, in terms of stagnant stock price let's not forget the company did pay over four billion dollars in dividends um, this year alone and per- repurchase 15 billion dollars worth of stock this year alone so there are ways they are returning. Um, capital to shareholders. What do you think of
3: that? You
2: have no use for dividends? <laughs> I, I, I'm a cash in hand kind of guy. I
1: love it. Gotcha. Uh, speaking of Target, Target's fourth quarter profit rose 11% and same store sales were up 2.5%. Uh, Charlie,
2: all that holiday shopping I did at Target, that's paying off for shareholders. Apparently. How could Target do not do well? I think every time I go in that store, I'm dropping 70 or 80 bucks. Uh, No, you know every time. Wow, daddy Uh, war books. What what are you typically buying? I think like these giant things of laundry detergent and other ridiculous stuff. I don't really need. (laughs) Um, You don't need laundry detergent. No, just just water (laughs) does the job. Uh, so, Target had 2% comps, which is in contrast to uh, Walmart, which was down, and they guided for a pretty impressive 4 or 5% growth this year. And what's working well for Target is some of their uh, higher end brands that you might not see uh, at the Walmart, which would be like KitchenAid, the Green Mountain Keurig, uh, the Calphalon. Uh, so, Target is really doing that w- well in that segment. But, you know, like some of their peers, Sears uh, and Best Buy, the electronics is a struggle for them. So, the Target isn't, you know, rosy across the Board. Uh, They had their own ups and downs within the quarter, um, but a little bit of higher traffic, and they did come through better than Walmart did. Um, And, you know, part of. The initiative that is working well for them is these uh, P Fresh store remodels, where they're bringing in, you know, more fresh meats and vegetables to kind of make this a one-stop shop experience. And they're going to accelerate those remodels as we go throughout this year. Ron, uh, one thing they're doing to drive uh, bring people in the door is they're offering a
0: five percent discount to folks who use uh, the Target branded credit card, mm-hmm. which which is a great way to bring people in. But it could pressure margins down the road. So, uh, you know, give up a give up a little piece of the pie to get more people in. We'll have to see how that how that shakes out.
1: Over the next five years, which stock do you like better, Walmart or Target? Ron?
0: Um, I like Target the company. I like
1: Walmart the stock. James? Walmart. Uh, Walmart. Wow, okay. Let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Coming up, would you like to invest in a business called Rent-A-Husband? It's not what you think. More in a moment. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in the studio with Charlie Travers, James Early, and Ron Gross as we dig into some of the companies making headlines this week. Amazon announced the official launch of its new video streaming service. The service will stream 5,000 movies and TV shows and is available to members of Amazon Prime, the company's $79 a year service for two-day shipping. Charlie
2: Travers, how scared should Netflix be? I would say not at all, Chris. (laughs) Not at all? Not at all. Uh, As someone who's a happy Netflix subscriber, as our uh, longtime listeners would know, um, the reality is, even though I'm happy with the service, Netflix doesn't offer everything. And so when I saw this Amazon announcement, uh, I went pretty quickly to the site and checked it out and saw what they had to offer. And uh, honestly, the interface isn't that great, and the pickings are pretty slim. You know, it's like going to a Blue Light special sale where you're left with like Need for Speed 3 or something like that, (laughs) you go. Old All the epi- movies
3: you could watch for Fox on right. free, right? Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's like old episodes of Doctor Who, and you know maybe that appeals to like four or five people, and I'm not one of them. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I don't see the Amazon Prime, you know, movie component as a Netflix killer. Uh, what I think it should be viewed as is uh, similar to a uh, a membership uh, warehouse like Costco or Sam's Club, and the reason is Amazon charges seventy nine dollars a year for Prime, and their whole goal is to get as many people as possible to pay them this cash up front. And, you know, and giving, the, you know, so they can get their shipping deals and what have you. And, you know, giving these members, uh, you know, movies or something like that is just kind of their way of making the Prime membership more enticing. But I don't even see Amazon as actually aiming to hurt Netflix with this as much as to support their own membership business. Ron?
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with Charlie, but I also think in kind of a, a larger scale that you should be a little bit worried if you're a Netflix shareholder because competition is coming. Um, and we're going to start to see it more and more and they've been not the only game in town, but the best game in town for, for a while now, uh, and I don't think that's going to last forever,
1: and the stock is priced as if it will. Hewlett-Packard's latest earnings were up 26%, but analysts were expecting more, and the stock got hammered this week. Ron Gross, why, why no love for HP? <laughs> <laughs> well, HP had been on a run, so uh, they were due for
0: a pullback, but this was quite a, a, sl- a slap in the face. Uh, weak demand for consumer products, PC products, and uh, the service business um, struggled a little bit. Uh, still very profitable, $3 billion in operating earnings for the quarter, so no violin playing for Hewlett Packard. They're
1: doing okay, but their expectations
0: were pretty high.
1: Um, the iPad 2 is coming out at some point, and HP is uh, launching their own tablet, Touchpad, um, how big a hit does that need to be for them? Well,
0: let's let's put it this way: they they acquired Palm for one point two billion dollars relatively recently um, to basically get the web OS operating system that that Palm had developed, and that's allowing to roll out some smartphones and the new touchpad tablet. So, um, they're making big investments in this side of the business. Even though HP remains a PC-based company, there's a lot of capital going in here. The new CEO, Leo Apotheker, has said he's willing to spend on R&D, he's willing to buy um, companies' targeted acquisitions to, to really uh, grow this company.
1: So, they've got a lot riding on it from an investment perspective. What does the touchpad need to have to, to gain traction? What, what, what do they need to have over the iPad to get people to say,
2: oh, I'm going to buy that instead? Apple's probably best known for having a seamless user experience. And, you know, somebody owns a couple uh, Macs myself. Where they tend to come up short is on some of the hardware inside the machine. And so a company like HP can kind of beef up the specs a little bit. They'll get more of the power users over.
1: At the Apple shareholder meeting this week, the Central Laborers Pension Fund, which owns Apple stock, Called for the company to publicly disclose a succession plan to ensure a smooth transition in case Steve Jobs leaves as CEO. The plan was voted down by shareholders. Apple says it already conducts
3: such planning internally. James Early, how would you have voted? You know, Chris, uh, I, I see two two things here. I understand both sides of the argument, but in, in my opinion we can't be drawing the line about what we should disclose and, and what we should not disclose on a per-company basis. I think if the SEC or somebody wants to mandate a, a policy that all companies have to disclose their succession plans, that's okay you know, in my book. But deciding, well, Steve Jobs is is, is this degree sick, um, and so we need to disclose now, to me, that's too fuzzy.
1: Well, and again, we're not talking about uh, a question of legality here, but I, I think at least part of the debate is what do they owe their shareholders ron what do you think yeah this kind of gets 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 me heated a little bit um
0: i don't understand what all the secrecy is about um this is it's not the cia this is a publicly owned company individual investors institutional investors are the owners of this company the shareholders of this company if i owned a private business you can be sure that i would want to know if the ceo of that business was very sick um or if something very important in the company was happening why is it different if, if it's a public company. There is no difference. They owe shareholders the knowledge if something important is going on in that business. If they know something important is going on and they're not disclosing it, I think that's really a breach of fiduciary duty. If they think something important would hit the stock and they're purposely not telling it. They
3: us. disclosed that Steve Jobs is sick.
1: He's on, he's Barely. He's on, yeah. he's on medical leave. Tim Cook is, is um, handling the day-to-day duties. Uh, but, I, I don't know. I, I think i come down with Ron on this one, because I, just removing it from Apple, uh, I own shares of Amazon. Jeff Bezos, the CEO, who I think on balance has done very well, I, I'd like to know what Amazon has planned in case uh, a Seattle bus mows him down and all of a sudden the, this company is without a leader. Well,
3: I would agree with that. I think it's fine if, they, if if every company were to, as a policy, put out succession plans. but. How do you draw the line in terms if you don't make it a policy on an individual company basis? What what mandates uh, uh, something that's necessary to be disclosed?
0: I, I'm I'm willing to let our public companies use some judgment where they say if if there's something material, no matter what it is, going on in the company, that should be d- disclosed. That's what the 8K SEC document is for. Anything material going on that needs to be disclosed. Clearly, if Mr. Jobs is quite sick. That is very material. And as a shareholder, please tell me, because then I'll
1: make a decision if I want to own the company going forward. And finally, in my beloved home state of Maine, the founder of Rent-A-Husband has agreed to pay investors $2 million in exchange for criminal charges against him being dropped. Among the charges that Cale Warren, the founder, told investors his company was worth millions and failing to inform them that, in fact, he and his company were virtually broke. Uh, rent a husband is uh, uh, the idea behind rent a husband is it outsources uh, chores around the house, so things that you don't want to do. It's not it's not what anyone out there might think in terms of renting a husband. <laughs> who, who was the thinking that? Chris? Sur- I don't know, the, Service for chores. I don't want to speak for our listeners, but we have a lot of them, and some of them might have been thinking. But just quickly around the <laughs> table, if if there was one household chore that you could
2: outsource? Charlie Travers, Just what would one. it be? Just one. Just one. Uh, I'll go with, uh, I love my cat, but I really hate cleaning the cat box, so that, that's <laughs> number one. James? Um, unlike Steve
3: Brito, I don't much like cleaning bathrooms. I think that was Steve's <laughs> favorite chore. Am I correct, Steve? Is that right, Steve?
2: Uh, yeah, sure. It's, it, it is definitely rewarding.
3: See, what I like to do is actually undo the screws to the toilet seat, and, like, get all under there and just get everything out. And, and it's just kind of nasty, and I, I would rather someone else do it.
0: All right. all right, Ron? I'm sorry to our <laughs> listeners for continuing the bathroom theme, but the the plunging of the toilet on occasion <laughs> is
1: something I could clearly live without for the rest of my life. See, I will take it outdoors and say that raking leaves, uh, I'd be more than happy to, to outsource that forever. Steve, what about you? You get to— uh, you get to outsource one household chore. What is um,
2: I'm with Charlie. The, the cat litter is, is definitely... My wife and I split the, the job, but it is it is miserable. And My cat's Chuck and Eddie, if you're listening out there. Guys, I love you, but I would rather someone else have to deal with <laughs> your business.
1: All right, coming up, what does the future look like for the tobacco industry? We'll talk with Brian Shackman about CNBC's new documentary, Cigarette Wars. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Brian Shackman is a CNBC correspondent and the host of a new CNBC documentary, Cigarette Wars. It airs next Wednesday, March 2nd, at 9 p.m. Brian, thanks for being here.
4: It's good to be with you again, Chris. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, What is it about tobacco that made you want to investigate this industry?
4: Well, it's actually, you know how it is reporting. It's a progression. My initial intent was to take a look at an iconic brand like Marlboro, and just see how it survives and thrives in the 21st century with all the things that are going on across the world, whether it be smoking prevention, the anti-smoking movement, government regulations, taxes, and just how this this icon has survived. And it really just morphed into a global look at tobacco in the 21st century because it's so much more than that. And, and honestly, we could have dedicated a lot more than one hour on it. But originally, that's where it came from. But it, when you learn about what's going on overseas and what's going on with the government in terms of how they're trying to deal with this incredible emergent illegal cigarette trade, which we'll talk about it, it's not just the company. The companies are hugely important because, you know, investors want to know if these businesses will be around in 20 years. But it's also about this, this culture. I mean, tobacco was a currency with the Native Americans before Europeans arrived, and it's it, people have been trying to get rid of it for centuries. And yet we're still here, and they're still making billions of dollars and people are still smoking
1: Now one of the things that you touch on in the documentary is how much tax revenue is lost the u.s loses five billion a year yep. overseas it 's a hundred billion. What is going on that that much money is being lost
4: well it 's a fascinating crime and it 's pretty simple i 'll give you the, the, the easiest incarnation of it is you, you take a low tax state there are about 20 states that have cigarette taxes lower than a dollar and in new York it's excuse me 435. So you go to a low tax state and you either buy or steal the cigarettes and you bring them to a high tax state and you sell them on the black market, and you know that margin difference is your profit. So,
1: so you're so you're laying out a business opportunity for me here.
4: Well, no, I mean listen, the <laughs> ATF will go after you, buddy. <laughs> and and you know it's it's ironic that the ATF's actually their business is turning a profit off. Of, of get, going after these criminals they they 're getting back more money than they're budgeted for to do this effort, but what happens is you can make in the black market like sixty bucks a carton, and you take an eighteen wheeler and drive it up ninety five from north carolina that 's a million dollars in cash and it 's going to fund gun runners, drug dealers that are even adjudicated cases that have connections to terrorist groups. I mean, those aren't the most common groups, but they're there, and it was just a shocking development in our reporting that some people know about and some people talk about, but that money, because basically when they sell the cigarettes in New York, New York doesn't collect those taxes, right? And that's where the money is lost, and it is the number one economic crime in Europe, and there's a lot of states, and there's been stories state to state, go to Missouri, there was a recent news story that, you know, if they they could deal with this and, and just get their cigarette taxes on par with some neighboring states, they'd have a balanced budget. And so, you know, taxes are kind of a silly topic. But remember, that's what, you know, it's, my joke is that's what brought Compone down. So it's worth talking about because it could balance budgets in a time where, where a lot of communities don't have money.
1: You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Brian Shackman from CNBC and the host of the new CNBC documentary, Cigarette Wars. Brian, this is a $60 billion industry we're talking yep. about. What surprised you the most when you were working on this documentary?
4: Wow, you I mean in terms of the businesses or just overall? Both. Yeah, it, it, what fascinates me is how people still smoke. There are a billion tobacco users worldwide every day. There's, even with all the smoking rates going down, 50 million smokers in the U.S., but they can't advertise on TV, radio, newspapers, and most magazines. And so you say, how does it happen? And what you learn is, is that whether or not they can't pay for product placement in movies uh, and whether or not there's a relationship there, we could not prove. But anytime somebody lights up on screen it is an influential thing, and we talked to some people who basically said that banning advertising was the best thing that ever happened for tobacco companies, and you would not think so, right? Well, that money just went to the bottom line. They migrated to the web, where if you're 21 and older, you can get a bunch of free stuff, and you can connect to the Marlboro Man, and they still have this legacy of smoking on cable and uh, in movies that, you know, listen, Sigourney Weaver, what is Sigourney Weaver doing smoking in avatar? She's a scientist, and she's in the future. I mean, (laughs) but yet, you know, James Cameron didn't the money. So I'm I'm not saying he took any money, but there's no place for it. It doesn't make any sense. But you know what? She looks cool doing it and it's a great cinematic trick and it's still happening. And that's why a lot of people start smoking.
1: So when you talk about how marketing strategies have changed and adapted over time, is the web really... Uh, the most significant change that's gone on?
4: I think so, and because there's not a lot of rules. They don't have banner ads, right? But you, their websites, they try to verify ages, but once you're in, you know, they then lock you into a database and they have you secured. And we know in, in the 21st century, having your personal information for a company is gold. And, and, and that is a huge thing. And it's, it's, when it comes to the companies, uh, what's surprising is that you, you look at these cigarette companies, and it's like Netflix. When Netflix was printing at $24 and they were doing all this stuff by mail, you're saying to yourself, they're going to go out of business because eventually the streaming's is going to take over and they're going to have no business model. Well, they were smart enough and good enough to adapt. And these cigarette companies have found a way to adapt. They've even, some companies have bought, you know, nicotine gums. Their smokeless are now uh, hugely profitable. And these companies yield incredible dividend yields, six, seven percent for some of the major U.S. tobacco companies. So they're still making money. Now, the question is, you know, what's going to happen with all these regulations and taxes? Are they going to eventually make tobacco illegal? I don't know. But right now, a lot of investors like these companies. Listen, Philip Morris uh, last week just hit new highs. You know, Philip Morris International. So PM is a ticker. So these companies are still hugely profitable, even though everyone seems to want to get rid of them.
1: You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Brian Shackman, host of the new CNBC documentary Cigarette Wars. It airs next Wednesday at 9 p.m. Brian, even with commodity prices, Mm -hmm. corn and others on the rise, tobacco is still the best cash crop per acre in the United States, yeah. why is the American tobacco farmer struggling?
4: It's a great question. And just to give listeners uh, the numbers, corn and soybeans can yield up to $300 an acre, and tobacco can yield... Up to 1,500. So it's not just like a hundred dollar per acre difference. It's a big difference, and the reason why they're struggling is that the U.S. tobacco companies aren't buying as much tobacco from them. We we talked to, we followed farmers from seedling all the way to auction, and some of them, you know, won't be able to sell some of their tobacco because it's not under contract, which is the first time that that ever happened for a lot of these people, because smoking is declining in the U.S. and if they're selling more tobacco in Indonesia, or China or poland they're not going to buy tobacco from American growers and then ship it over there to make the cigarettes, or they're not going to ship the finished product. They're going to buy the tobacco closer to those areas and they're going to produce it there, and that's why the American tobacco growers are struggling, because they, know, they see the future. The future in the United States is grim, and the future is overseas, because these companies are going to the places with the least amount of rules and the least educated populations. And Actually, one of our farmers, he's the head of a five-state co-op that has hundreds of millions of pounds of tobacco. He literally trades in the overalls for a suit and tie. And he logged 100,000 miles last year going to all the places I just mentioned in the world trying to sell tobacco. So it's not just the cigarette companies that are trying to sell tobacco overseas. It's also these farmers, because if they don't, they're going to either go out of business or they're going to have to find a new crop. And as I just said, they they cannot find a crop that makes as much money.
1: So what do you think the tobacco industry does look like 20 years from now? I mean, there are you know, state governments getting a lot of money from the so-called sin taxes. Um, so on the one hand, right. I think it's unlikely that tobacco would be regulated out of existence, but it seems like there's some people who'd be in favor of that.
4: Yeah, and it's one of those strange dynamics. We talked to mayor, the New York City mayor Mike Bloomberg, and he said, listen, I would give up that tax money in a minute because long-term it, sa- it saves health costs, but you know politicians have short-term you know, views. They have to get elected, and they're not going to adopt that necessarily. It's an awesome question, and it's a question, I, it's a hard one to answer. Do I think cigarettes are gonna, going to become illegal? Well, I know that politically, even though they love the tax money, it, it is the most toxic Substance sold, I mean we have a great quote from Henry Waxman back in the day, just talking about it, it 's the the worst consumer product ever made but i I think that they're going to make it as difficult as possible and as expensive as possible to do it, and people will still do it, but it 's going to be the dynamic where it 's almost going to be confined to their private homes i mean there there's a just this past week there was a um, a decision made where if a gentleman in a Manhattan apartment lit up one more cigar. Uh, he had to pay a $2,000 fine because neighbors, you know, brought a suit against him. And, and so if I was going to say the future, it's going to be extremely expensive. Fewer people are going to do it, but I have a tough time thinking that it's going to be illegal. But there are some people out there, and I'm not trying to make a joke uh, of it, Chris, that think that there could be a day where t- marijuana is legal and cigarettes aren't.
1: That is something to ponder. Uh, I
4: imagine the guys in Kentucky growing weed. (laughs) I don't know if it's going to happen, but some people think it will.
1: You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Brian Shackran from CNBC. All right, Brian, before we let you get out of here, we need to wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold.
4: Buy, sell, or hold.
1: Let's start with buy, sell, or hold the likelihood that the New York Times will still be publishing a print edition in five years.
4: In five years. I'm going to say yes. And I think it's going to be free and thin. And they're going to use it to promote their web presence, and they're going to advertise to cover costs. So the answer is yes, I'm buying.
1: Buy, seller hold Facebook as a public company.
4: I'm buying it. It's going to be a hard barrier entry for the average investor. But I think, though, even though they're doing well in the second market, they're going to be too big. They're going to have to go public. And my guess would be 2012.
1: You spent a few years working for ESPN, so we'll shift yes. over to sports for a moment with the threat of an NFL lockout looming. Buy, sell, or hold pro football's 2011 season starting on time.
4: So a buy would be it's going to start on time? Yes. I, I, I am going to sell that. Oh. I know. And I'm a huge <laughs> Patriots fan. I love the NFL. Me too. I just think there's too much money involved, and I think that I know they're in, me, in mediation right now. I just think that it's going to be difficult, especially if the owners want 18 games, and I think the owners are the only people on the planet that want 18 games. And a part of me, you know, you always tend to root for management and ownership for some reason in these things, but in this case, I'm kind of rooting for the players, because what they want is a little more in line with what I want. But I have a feeling that we're going to lose three to four games, and when the season's in danger of being wiped out, they'll come to a deal.
1: He's been struggling on the golf course over the past year. Buy, sell, or hold the future of Tiger Woods?
4: I think I've, this is a great question, Chris, because I, I love Tiger Woods when he was at his top, and he was great, and I love greatness, and then obviously he had this fall from grace. I will say that I think he will come back and be the number one player in the world, but I will say, and I'm gonna, I might come to regret this, I don't think he'll break Jack Nicklaus's record now. On the I majors? What's that?
1: On the majors. On the
4: majors, because I think that's going to take him longer than anyone thinks for him to dominate again, and nobody fears him. So I am, I guess, selling. Even though I think he'll come back, I don't think he'll be what he once was. So I'm selling Tiger Woods, dominating once again.
1: He's one of the people you interviewed for the new documentary Cigarette Wars. He is strongly anti-smoking. Buy, sell, or hold the likelihood Michael Bloomberg runs for president.
4: I am going to sell that. I think that... uh, I think that his profile has too many headwinds. I mean there's a quote that I can't share with your audience that isn't quite appropriate but I mean, <laughs> I mean he I mean, I'm he,
1: shocked a big city mayor using that kind of language but
4: I don't want to get in trouble. But listen, I I mean he he's 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 divorced. He's from a certain you know, part of the country that it's difficult. I think there's elements of his background that are going to be a tough sell to the whole country. Do I think he's a strong enough leader? Do I think he's smart enough? I absolutely do, and I'm not even a supporter of his. I just know I've met him and interviewed him, and he's a strong presence. He's really smart, and I like people who are... Are so confident in what they believe in and don't need money or anything that they just do exactly what they think is right regardless of party. And I think that that's one of the good things, but I think he'd be better served in the administration. I don't think he can win, and so I don't think he'll run.
1: And finally, for years, he was one of the biggest stars on CNN, and he's just announced he'll be doing a one-man comedy show about his life and career, buy, sell, or hold the comedy stylings of Larry King
4: that's a sell. <laughs> I, just can't, I just can't see it. I just think it's going to be Jerry Seinfeld meets Rodney Dangerfield, and I just think it's not going to be funny.
1: The new CNBC documentary is Cigarette Wars. It airs Wednesday, March 2nd at 9 p.m. So tune in or set your DVRs, people. Brian Shackman, thanks so much for being here.
4: Always a pleasure. Smoking in the ball.
1: Coming up, we'll dip into the Fool mailbag and give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, and back in the studio with me our trio of senior analysts, Charlie Travers, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, time to welcome uh, a new affiliate, WGAC AM 580 and FM 93.1 in Augusta, Georgia. Latest Yay. stations for the golf family. Uh, any golfers here? Because I'm thinking maybe no. we, we, you know, we head down to Augusta for, you know, to visit our new affiliate, maybe sometime in April when the Masters are going on. I'll drive the cart. Fabulous. I'll try not to spill my drink. Alright, we're going to dip into the full mailbag for the first time in a while, and let's go to our man on the other side of the glass, Steve Broido. Steve, what do you got for us?
4: Yes, we have a question from Walter.
2: His question, people on the show frequently refer to the tens of billions of dollars held on company balance sheets these days that will be needed in the future or returned to investors, etc. But where do they actually keep that money? And in what form? Surely not in a good old savings account at the local bank.
1: Surely. Not in the local savings account,
0: uh, Ron. You want to take the first whack. Um, so it's always a combination of things. A, it's, it's traditional cash, it's actual cash and short-term instruments, whether it be treasury bills, uh, money market funds. Then they'll they'll invest some um, in some longer-term um, instruments to get get a little better yield, perhaps, and sometimes even even longer-term than that. And they'll be categorized as long-term investments, and analyze, analysts will clump that in together as cash. When they get in trouble is when they start chasing yield. And we saw this in the recession where they started investing in auction rate securities or, or other uh, more risky types of money mm-hmm. market funds. And, and we had a, a phenomenon called uh, breaking the buck where, hey, surprise, a dollar isn't worth a dollar anymore. And, and the million dollars you had with us is not worth a million any longer. So uh, you got to be kind of careful with cash. You want to earn a good yield, but you don't want to chase yield. yeah James?
3: There's a whole cottage industry, actually a real industry based on... on earning the best cash return uh, companies uh, can get. You know, just a, a few uh, blips or, or, or basis points, as we say. A basis point is of a hundredth of a full percentage point more. Uh, can make a big difference if you got a lot of cash.
2: Charlie? And, yeah, the only point I'll make different is that if you're looking at large multinational companies, some of these caches with significant overseas operations actually have their cash overseas in banks. Around the world, and it's not really freely available to invest in the United States without paying a tax on it. So, if, you know, whatever the number is on the balance sheet, it's it's subject to different kinds of rules as to how much that's really available. If you ran a company and you had literally billions of dollars
1: in cash, wouldn't you want some of it in actual cash, like right there in your office, to like roll around I, in? Just to roll around in, or just to stack up, like Absolutely. like in a display case, and just people come in, they're sitting in the lobby, and it's just like, what's that? Oh, that, that's our cash. Yeah. Pile I of money. That's our fun. big old pile of money. All right, time to talk about the stocks that are on our radar this week. And Charlie Travers, I will start with you.
2: Uh, One of my very old-time rule-breakers picks, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, uh, the tickers VRTX, had some very interesting news to report this week on a drug for cystic fibrosis. Uh, One of my strategies with drug companies is to look for companies doing innovative R&D for diseases where there are no available treatments, and cystic fibrosis is certainly one of those, and they're filing uh, for FDA approval later this year, and that's really exciting.
1: Um, Do you have a sense of what the FDA approval process is going to be like for them? Because it seems like, with with companies in this space, um, it can can be fast, or it can take years upon years.
2: It's far easier if there's no existing uh, drug on the market, and the FDA tends to be a lot more lenient. If it's a crowded field with a lot of effective therapies, the bar is very high. James Early, what's your stock this week? Chris, I'm going the, the no
3: originality route because it's always worked <laughs> well for me so far. I didn't say Chevron, you know, this is my favorite oil company, I think everybody knows it has less refining exposure. It's also a deep water drilling expert and we've used up most of our light close to the surface oil, so so having that expertise is is really gonna help.
0: Ron? For several weeks, I've been hammering home the theme of uh, rising food prices, which, yep. which probably means we're at the, the top of that trade. So take this for what it's worth. But I'm still uh, still really focused on it. And I'm going to give one final way to play that, which is a, an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, called the PowerShares DB Agriculture, um, ticker symbol DBA. And this is simply uh, an ETF that tracks commodities like soybean, mm-hmm. corn, sugar, wheat. And if, if those rise in value, um, the share price of this ETF
1: will as well. And what has it done recently? It's as as prices have gone <laughs> up, so 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 it has as well. All right. Ron Gross, James Early Charlie Travers, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thanks to our special guest this week, Brian Shackman from CNBC. The new CNBC documentary, Cigarette Wars, debuts this coming Wednesday night, March 2nd at 9 p.m. and gets replayed at 10 p.m. That's Cigarette Wars on CNBC. Really interesting stuff, so check it out. And if you haven't already, check out Market Foolery, our new daily podcast on iTunes and at MarketFoolery.com. Our engineers are Steve Broido and Gail Año Nuevo. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.